Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And we have reports that show Dianne Feinstein is in far worse health than her staff disclosed. We have an excellent show today, a show of shows. Representative Jake Achenklaas and Lucas Kantz, who is running to unseat our least favorite runner, Josh Hawley, in the Senate, will stop by to talk about just how ridiculous Josh Hawley's new book is. Then we'll talk to the Daily Beast's Sam Brody about all the latest fuckery in Congress. But first, we have fan favorite, friend of mine, the host of The Lawrence O'Donnell Show, MSNBC's very own Lawrence O'Donnell. Welcome back to Fast Politics fan favorite and my personal favorite, Lawrence. Let me just say something about hosting guests in a talk (laughs) format. The one thing, the one thing I, Lawrence O'Donnell, can never say is this is my favorite guest. (laughs) You know, I don't think Johnny Carson ever said that. I don't think Letterman ever said that. It's just like, you know, you say that and there's a hundred guests out there who are never coming back. Let me say, if you say everyone is the favorite guest. Okay, then you're covered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I do that. Yeah, but you better start now. I mean, you... (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the 14th Amendment Not without its problems. We are in this debt ceiling situation. It is reliant on the stupidest person to ever have been speaker. Maybe that's a bold statement. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I believe it's a true statement. We have looked at the SATs of every speaker going back to (laughs) 1780 and and, yeah. (laughs) Kevin 
McCarthy, it feels like he's a man out of his depth. I actually don't think he is exactly. He's a stupid man in many ways who is the representative of and quote leader of, but we know he's not the leader of, the stupidest party delegation in the history of the House of Representatives. So you'd have to look at the Republican House and say, do you have anyone smarter than Kevin McCarthy? And the answer is, oh, yes, sure. A few, you know, Tom Cole, for example, who used to be a reasonable Republican. But Tom Cole now, you know, very faithfully follows all the principles of Trumpism and as Kevin McCarthy does and and lives in service to them out of fear of two things in the case of Tom Cole. One is uh, not being reelected and the other is not being able to be chairman of the rules committee. If he was reelected and wasn't playing the role of dumb pro-Trump guy, then he would not have a chairmanship. And so that's enforcing the dumb behavior on the very small group of Republican House members who are are not idiots. Right. And then there are some in that group who are like the Thomas Masseys, not stupid, but have such bad libertarian brainworms that there's no help. You're going to have to do the neurology on distinguishing <laughs> how libertarian brainworms are different from stupid in any functional way at all. Right. True. Let's just talk about this for a second. We ha- we're careening towards a debt ceiling drama. I mean, where do you think this goes? I have no idea. Okay. Right. So audience right. members, if you don't want to listen to someone who has no idea, <laughs> this is your moment to go switch over to something else. I feel like that must be declared by everyone participating in this discussion. And I've changed my mind about it a few times along the way, and I'm ready to again. In the end, we may look at it and diagram it and say, Biden played it exactly right. We don't know that yet, but he might have done so. And so I have been attracted to the 14th Amendment solution, so-called, in which the president simply says, when you hit the debt ceiling, which is kind of a mythological moment, you know, it's that they're saying it's June 1st, but you know, it's not exactly like your checking account that it hits, you know, a spot where there's no money. And so that the president can simply authorize the issuance of new and additional debt because it is his duty, as Lawrence Tribe points out brilliantly, I think, it is his duty to faithfully execute all of the laws Congress has passed. And Congress has passed all these laws mandating spending in Medicare and Social Security and defense and education and all sorts of things. And so he must follow those laws. It's his duty to fund those things. And by the way, there is nowhere, anywhere, even the hint or suggestion that there is an executive authority, presidential or in the Treasury Secretary, to decide what bills not to pay. That's not an authority that exists. So the Republicans think like, sure, you hit the debt ceiling and then Biden just doesn't pay for anything liberal and he pays for all the soldier stuff. It's like, no, (laughs) there's no, you know, there's no authority that allows him to do that. And so I would say if you were going to use the 14th Amendment power, the power that people believe resides there, I would have announced it a while ago. I might have even announced it in the State of the Union address and just say the debt ceiling as currently legislated will 
intersect, you know, with the debt at some point later this year. And I want this Congress to know that absolutely under no circumstances will we default on the debt because I will, if Congress does nothing, I will take the action, executive action necessary to authorize the extension of additional debt. And then your no negotiation position, I think, uh, my guess is, becomes even stronger. Because you're saying to them, look, I don't care if you don't legislate anything. And you're saying it to them six months ahead of time. I think there's a chance it would have changed the dynamics of this. And the other thing about it that makes it the kind of thing you do want to say six months ahead of time is there are market issues with it. You know, the when you say we're going to continue to extend the debt and expand the debt, even though we've crossed the line, the number that's in the debt ceiling, the buyers of that new debt, right, the buyers of the new treasury bonds that would be sold under that condition would rightfully demand a higher interest rate because this debt is being issued under a condition we've never seen, except back before there was ever a debt ceiling, which is like, it's only been around for less than a hundred years. Right. But I mean, they just started deciding that it was optional in 2007, right? That's correct. We used to pass it by unanimous consent. I thought when I was working on the finance committee, which has jurisdiction over it, that we did only one markup and as they call it in the committee and one passage of a of a debt ceiling increase. There was only one I could remember because the other one we did unanimously. (laughs) (laughs) And traditionally, by the way, in those days, what would happen is the party in power that needed to increase the debt ceiling voted for it. And many of the members of the party not in power voted against it. They didn't obstruct it. They didn't demand anything. They just voted no. And that's the way they did it in 1993. Uh, the first time Bill Clinton had to raise the debt ceiling, you know, Bob Dole led all the Republicans in, by the way, very congenially voting no, not being obstructive in any way. And then, you know, 57 Democrats, uh, you know, voted to pass the debt ceiling and there was no struggle whatsoever. It was always a posture you know, because Bob Dole had participated already in raising the debt ceiling for Republican presidents. And the most regrettable vote and possibly only regrettable vote that Senator Obama ever cast was when he was in the minority in the Senate and there was a Republican president, the Democrats mostly voted against the increase in the debt ceiling. And that was just a stunt. It was nothing but a stunt. They all knew the debt ceiling should be increased. And it's fine to cast that vote as a senator as long as you never become president. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's the only stunt component of it in the past was that the party that didn't have to vote for it didn't vote for it generally. There were some principled senators who always voted for it. Always, you know, no matter who was in power. Yeah, now it's reached this madness level, which, you know, we saw coming, you know, f- since election night last year. I want you to talk me through this because I feel like you have opinions on this too. So we have this Kentucky Secretary of State, Michael Adams, who uh, won, re- he won his primary conservative 
what worked with Bashir was able to hold on to his seat through a Republican primary. I mean, again, I, this is in no way an endorsement, but more of a question. Here's a candidate who who did in a ruby red state who did actually sort of uh, the Trumpists made a run at him and didn't win. I mean, do you think this is hopeful or do you just get do you think this is just sort of one of these things that happens? It's hard to say yet whether it's a trend. And the balance of the electorate is relatively unchanged. I mean, the ba- the electorate, it's not like there's a lot of New Yorkers who go, hey, I want to move to Kentucky, you know? And so it's not one of those places with a very dynamically changing demographic. It's a bit mysterious. I mean, Kentucky has a democratic history. If you go back far enough beyond the 1990s, they all kind of do, those states. But I have a feeling that those kinds of elections are very, very much about the individual, very much about the individual. When the Democrat wins in the state that is generally not supportive of Democrats, it tends to be the individual. Historically, that's what it has tended to be. That doesn't mean it's something that's something you can duplicate very easily. Right. That's the question we're going to be watching in those 24 elections is, is the Trumpist fever breaking or will they just keep losing? So there are two factors in this coming election that we've never had before. One is it's year eight of Trump, right? And so I've always looked at administrations as TV series, you know, and some of them run for four years, which is respectable, and some of them run for eight years, which is considered a very big success for TV series. But what happens in all TV series is there becomes a certain audience fatigue that sets in. And <laughs> right. that's that's why those series end. I mean, I think ER with George started with George Clooney, uh, you know, was his big break. I think ER went like 14 seasons and it was a giant rated show. But, you know, the last three years, the line was just going down, you know, and the show was right. the show was every bit as good as it was in the in the first year. Didn't have George Clooney, so maybe not quite as good. And that's kind of the way it works. You know, there's a fatigue that sets in with these people. So the Trump fatigue question, which is a question for Republicans, because Democrats have had Trump fatigue since the second week of his first campaign. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Around when he came down that escalator. Right. So there's the Trump fatigue question. How does it work? What's the effect of it? And oh, by the way, in an additional parentheses on the end of the Trump fatigue question, it's the defendant Trump question. You know, the, the criminal defendant, how many cases is he a criminal defendant in while running for president? That's a weight we've never seen before on a candidate. And then the other part of it is Roe versus Wade. That's the thing that for, you know, 50 years stabilized a certain aspect of our politics. And there was a comfort that the people who wanted Roe versus Wade to stay in place, they earned their their comfortable sensation that it would stay in place. And they de-energized as voters on that particular issue because it was, from their perspective, quote, taken care of. And it's not. We've seen that that dynamic has produced a voting energy that gets you to 51% in places where you know, you couldn't get out of the 40s before. Those are the big things. And each one of them are things we've never had in our politics before. You know, we've never had this Roe versus Wade's been overturned. You know, what does that do at the ballot box? And the Trump fatigue factor at this level of it and with criminal defendant Trump running. And so 
those all feel like negatives for the Republican side, to put it mildly. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I was talking to Mike Tomaski about this, editor of The New Republican. He was saying that he wondered, and again, we don't really know. We really don't know. And we're so far out from this election, but that he could you, you could see this going very badly for Trump. I have a suggestion for renaming the podcast. <laughs> yes. We don't know. With Molly Junkfast, <laughs> our first guest, Lawrence O'Donnell, <laughs> the king of we don't know. Well, we wildly uh, speculate because that's all we can do. No, that's right. Or, yes, that's right. Wild speculation with Molly Junkfast. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little long. Yeah. I want to ask you about this idea. I read a pretty interesting article about this idea of uh, the judiciary being really, at this point, creating more legislation than any of the legislation legislative bodies. Is it supposed to be this way? It's been, you know, trending that way for 50 years. You know, that's what that's what the argument was about Roe versus Wade was like, okay, we understand kind of procedurally how it ended up here. But one of the reasons it ended up in the Supreme Court is that the Congress had done nothing on the subject, you know, and the Congress could have, and they did absolutely nothing on the subject. And by the way, they were greatly relieved. You know, both sides were greatly relieved that the Republicans and Democrats were thrilled that the Supreme Court took abortion out of their hands. So then they could just posture on it and never had to do anything. Right. Like immigration, right? Yeah, they loved it. And so, yeah, it, it's been an increasing trend over time for at least 50 years. Some people would argue, you know, the Brown versus Board of Education is part is part of that trend. Like that should have been legislated. But it goes into incredible levels of complexity in corporate law. And there's all sorts of stuff that the Supreme Court's doing every day, you know, that we don't even know about because there's very, very complex, you know, business litigation in there that is in effect legislating. And it is the current condition. And, and the Congress during my lifetime just chose, willfully chose to become weaker and weaker. You know, the phrase imperial presidency did not exist until the 1970s. And one of the things that made it exist was we went to war. Uh, we lost over 50,000 American soldiers in war without a declaration of war. And the one thing that you are absolutely sure of in the Constitution is that the war-making power belongs exclusively to the Congress. And they gave it up. And they gave it up willingly because they, as weak politicians, they looked at it and said, geez, that's really a tough decision. I would prefer not to participate in the tough decisions. Right. So, they, so then you got this thing, you know, called, you know, the executive authority of the president to just fire off missiles literally anywhere in the world, like at any time. Right, right, right. What do you want to, you want to hit Syria? Go ahead. Do you have any authority to do that? No, right, we don't no. have a document. No. And, and the Congress has never objected to it because of their own weakness. They've done that on a bunch of different fronts. And so the executive and the judiciary have been, you know, through Congress's complicit weakness, increasingly taking over legislative authorities. Lawrence, thank you so much. I hope you will come back. When I come back, I won't know anything. <laughs> Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. 
chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Jake Auchincloss represents Massachusetts' 4th District. Lucas Kuntz is running for the Missouri Senate. So welcome, Congressman Jake Auchincloss and Lucas Kuntz. So you guys are here together because you are filming a buddy comedy. No, really, (laughs) tell us why you have united to write an op-ed together. So first, Molly, thanks for having me on. It's, It's nice to be back, and it's a real privilege to be sharing the the stage with Lucas. And January 6, 2021 was my second day in Congress. It has imprinted itself upon me in a lot of different ways. But one of the defining images from that horrific day for American democracy was Senator Josh Hawley first raising his fist in a petulant manner to the crowd. And then hours later, scurrying away from the from the mob, hiding behind the Capitol officers who he would later vote to defund in an act of cowardice that really kind of sums up his approach to politics, which is to say this superficial, contrarian, smug attitude to America's problems that is wholly unsubstantiated by anything he actually does in office to help working people. 
And Lucas and I are articulating that in plain language for the American public to see and digest. Lucas, explain to us what your how you got involved in this. Yeah, so I'm running against Josh Hawley right now for the U.S. Senate seat here in Missouri. I mean, look, like people are tired of fakers. We're tired of fakers everywhere. We're especially tired of in Missouri. It's funny, you know, his approval in Missouri is 42. His disapproval is 43. He's underwater in a red state. Like, that's an accomplishment, right? And it's an accomplishment that he has achieved just based on his own character, like Jake says, right? Like, the guy's a fraud. He's a phony. People don't like him. And he does this, like, weird fake populist thing where he claims that the Republican Party is going to be the parting of working working people, but he goes against absolutely everything that we need. And so for me, we know what I want to talk about here and what uh, Jake is bringing up too, is that like this whole, his weird manhood stick, it's just getting creepy and it's all about his own power. What he wants to do is tell people what to do, what to do. He doesn't want to give us the tools to do things on our own. And that's what we need. It's what people in Missouri want. And so for me, you know, it's a real opportunity kind of out here on the front lines in the fight for democracy to make a stand, to go against a guy who's uh, who's faking it and, uh, you know, win one for the good guys. That is an incredible, incredible line. He also doesn't live in Missouri, right? I'm not going to judge any of this stuff. There's lots of things out there. People can look up what they want to look up. For me, like like the real critical part of this is really just hitting. I mean, maybe that's part of the fakeness, but the fakeness of the things he says versus the things he does. Right. And so for me, I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Jeff City, Missouri. My family went bankrupt for medical bills. We really struggled. And the way we made it is because in that neighborhood, people with no more money than we had asked the plate for us down at church. You know, they brought more tuna casserole by the house than we could eat. And we really were able to take care of each other. Everyone there did that. Everyone in Missouri does that. And when we don't have politicians like Josh Hawley, A, dividing us as many ways as they can, and B, defunding us by taking away our opportunities to have meaningful work, our opportunities to get a good wage, our opportunities to get a, um, overtime, uh, and a bunch of other things like we can take care of ourselves and we do a good job of it. And so for me, this is about empowering everyday people, investing in everybody, everyday people who make this country strong and going against his passage, which is just like, you know, in order to be a man, you have to be more like me, which in itself is just crazy, right? Yeah. Jake, Congressman Ockenclaw, sorry. I'm always, <laughs> want to stay fancy. I want to ask you, you both are veterans uh, can you talk to me about that? One of the defining things that you learn in officer candidate school and basic officer course and the entire Marine Corps training pipeline is leadership by example, first and foremost. So don't tell people what to do. Act in the manner that you wish other people would know you for and would emulate. And again, we see with Senator Hawley, you know, exemplified by January 6th, but but doubled down every day thereafter is he puts forward this fake populist fervor, but acts totally differently in how he actually votes and what he actually stands for. And so just really not leadership by example at all. And then the other thing you learn is officers eat last, which is to say that it's only after every member of the platoon has what they need, food, supplies, R&R, that an officer should see to their own needs or comforts. And Washington could use a lot more of that mentality, frankly, overall. But certainly, we need it from people in positions like like a senator from Missouri. I mean, we've seen Hawley 
vote against Affordable Care Act, vote against better pay and overtime benefits for workers in Missouri. We've seen him vote against the infrastructure and high-tech manufacturing bills that have doubled down on this country's economic strengths and infrastructure. He just is not taking care and looking out for the everyday American. He's looking out for himself and his own political ambitions. Yeah. Lucas, will you explain to us just a little bit about how being a veteran affects your running for office and your governing? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot is what Jake just said, right? You're you're leading for other people. And so for me, you know, the, the whole reason that I joined the Marine Corps to begin with is because when we were kids, this guy who ran our parish church kitchen, actually, it's, it's funny, like my, my little sister and I, we would volunteer at the uh, at the like soup kitchen nights. And he'd ask everybody always like, hey, what do you guys, uh, what chores do you want to do? You know, do you want to set the table? Do you want to greet people? Do you want to clear plates? What do you want to do? And so my little sister and I were always like, oh, oh, oh Al, we want to do the dishes. We want to do the dishes. <laughs> and Al was always like, What's wrong with these kids? Like, who wants to do the dishes? That's crazy. <laughs> and finally, he figured it out that we didn't have a dishwashing machine at our house. And with a family of six, like, that's a real amount of uh, toil you're doing every night. They had dishwashers at the parish. And so we thought we were scamming him, right? Because we just threw the place in there and walked away. And like, Al's such an idiot, right? <laughs> he thinks we're doing chores here. And so Al figured that out. And one day, several years later, when he renovated the kitchen at his house, his dishwasher out. He put it into his big blue pickup truck. He brought it over to our house and had it installed for us. The thing about Al was he was a Marine officer in Vietnam. He learned, you know, selfless care, taking care of others, not asking for anything in return in the Marine Corps. And so, you know, I joined because I wanted to be like him. My 13 years, I had to live up to the standard he held. And uh, it's like Jake said, we need more members of Congress who are there to invest in other people. Like Al invested in us. He saved us 45 minutes of hard labor every single night, right? That the way we could focus yeah. on school or whatever else. Like these are the types of small investments that we can also make at a big scale. And then people like Josh Hawley, again, they are not willing to make. He never learned real leadership. He's, you know, his manhood book is about telling people what to do. It's not about showing them. It's not about empowering them. And it's not about giving folks the resources live their lives in a manner where we can all take care of each other. Molly, it's also worth noting what is right beneath the surface of Senator Hawley's definition of, of manhood, and, and at times actually has been made explicit, which is that he views it as a zero-sum calculation with the empowerment of women in this country. He basically thinks that every step forward that women take in terms of empowerment in the workplace, in control over their own bodies in their ability to have more agency in our economy and society, some of the real achievements of the last 50 years, his worldview is that every step forward is necessarily a step backwards for men. And that is a dangerous worldview because his definition of manhood is saying, we've got to roll back the clock for women in this country. And that's not just rhetoric. As we've seen over the last several years, we've got a Supreme Court that especially if empowered by the Senate, wants to start doing that. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so interesting about these Trumpers is that 
they're actually like less progressive than the United States military, which I think is interesting. You know, I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time. There's a lot of these Trump Republicans attack the military for things like, you know, just being sort of, you know, if you're a woman and you work hard in the military, you sort of have the same experiences. I mean, you largely are able to get the same kind of promotions that the men are. And I think that some of that kind of equality is really infuriating to the MAGA Republicans. Well, Molly, it's actually, it's become even more dangerous than that. We've seen Senator Tuberville of Alabama, who is cut from the same cloth as Senator Hawley. He is with uh, holding up through senatorial privilege, hundreds of senior military promotions in the Indo-Pacific because he's having a tantrum over the military's abortion policy. And this is unprecedented. Even Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, not exactly a paragon of progressive values, has said it's inappropriate. And it's directly threatening national security at a time when the United States needs to stand tall, both in terms of military posture and in planning and organizational competence in the Indo-Pacific against the CCP and their designs on the Taiwan Strait and the, and the South China Sea. We've got one senator from Alabama who's so mad that women have control over their own reproductive decisions that he is threatening our entire national security. That is the direction that the MAGA wing of the Senate GOP wants to take in terms of politicizing the military. And you can bet that Senator Hawley will be an enthusiastic participant in that. I mean, he's already, for example, opposed aid to Ukraine, opposed Finland and Sweden joining NATO. I mean, these are slam dunk issues in the in this Senate conference, the Senate GOP conference. And yet, out of his desire to be contrarian and build his own political ambitions up, he really has run against the grain of core American security priorities. So tell us, Lucas, one of the things I'm always interested in, and we just had Colin on this podcast, we were talking about how actually Ted Cruz only kept his seat by three points. So tell us, Lucas, how you can win in a red state, which did have a Democratic senator pretty recently. Right. I mean, we actually had all Democrat, almost all Democrats statewide up through 2017. Uh, we lost our last one this year, actually. She didn't run again for the state auditor. And yeah, I mean, it's a state where people are willing to go both ways. I mean, when you look at some of the ballot measures we've passed lately, uh, people are shocked, right? Like, Missouri overturns the anti-union right to work legislation at ballot initiative 68% to 32%. Holly was on the wrong side of that. We increased our minimum wage $5 over the federal level. Uh, we passed uh, legalization of first medical and then recreational marijuana. We expanded Medicaid. Again, all of these things uh, over the politician. And so while we have a very like progressive uh, or even populist streak, which is what Holly's you know, fake the crime to tap into, we also got people that are willing to vote the, the you know opposite way on politicians. Again, I talked about people who were all recently elected, but even in 2016, the last time we had a Senate race with a presidential race here in Missouri, uh, Jason Kander came within three points of beating Roy Blunt uh, when Donald Trump here won by 17 points. And so it's a state where people will vote based on the person. And I can tell you right now, Holly's way less popular than Roy Blunt was at the time. Yeah. Jason Kander was an Afghanistan veteran. You know, I'm a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, so we're kind of similar in many ways. And uh, we just have a situation where you have a very unpopular guy who who can't raise money. I mean, you know, Jake was talking about how these guys will do all these things against American interests uh, in order to be contrarian and get campaign capital. And it's true. Like, in Republican campaigns right now, there's only two sources of capital, right? It's corporate money 
or it's culture war capital. And so Josh Hawley, he's already tossed away the uh, corporate money because on January 6th, they decided to flee him. That's how he originally got in. And now he's leaning in on the cultural side, but he's doing it in just such like a creepy way with like this manhood book and everything else that actually just turns people <laughs> off. That's why he's unpopular. So uh, oh, we got a real exciting opportunity that I'm, I'm excited to roll all the way to the end. Tell us a little bit about your friendship because this is pretty interesting. First and foremost, Marines just always watch out for one another. And you know, we connected, Lucas and I, because for as long as I've been in Congress, and especially since January 6th, I've seen Senator Hawley as emblematic of so much of what's wrong in this town and have been eager for a candidate of the quality of Lucas, who's got the work ethic, who's got the biography, got the strategy to unseat this guy and actually bring authentic, principled representation for the great state of Missouri. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, we owe him a thank you card. Thanks, Josh Hawley, for sucking so much. <laughs> Bringing us together and making this seat so eminently winnable. Great guy. <laughs> well, I do really hope that uh, this works out for you guys. And I do hope you'll take this buddy comedy on the road because it's much needed for this moment. Well, me too. You know, Jake just had a baby, though. So we got to we gotta see how that plays out. Congratulations, <laughs> my friend. Thank you. Yeah, my leash is pretty short these days. I think my wife's tolerance for... Uh... <laughs> a road show with gallivanting around the country is a little low. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get back to this seat for one more second. Lucas, what do you need right now? So right now, uh, we're obviously doing a big press and publicity push around the campaign, around Holly's book and all the terrible things he's doing. So if people would follow us on Twitter, it's Lucas Kuntz, M-O. So Lucas a-U-N-C-E-M-O. Uh, you can see what we're up to. You can kind of follow what we're tracking. We always need donations. You can give those at lucascoons.com. We actually raised three times from donations, what Holly did last quarter. Again, the guy, he's run out of that sort of capital and he's just banking on culture capital. So we're going to have a real opportunity to go after him there. And uh, just otherwise, if you're in Missouri, spread the word. If you know any, anybody in Missouri, spread the word. There's a real grassroots component to this campaign. Uh, that we want to make sure we get out there. And you're going to every district. and Oh, we're in every every small town. I tell you what, we went to Freeburg the other day, a year and a half before the election. And uh, it's a town of 400 people and 100 folks came out to the American Legion there uh, to see us. So we're going everywhere. We're getting there and we're getting good crowds. It's nice. Fantastic. Well, good luck to you. And thanks. I hope you both will come back. Of course, Molly. Thanks. Take care. Hi, it's Molly. And I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Sam Brody is a congressional reporter for The Daily Beast. Welcome to Fast Politics, Sam Brody. Thank you so much for having me. You are a fan favorite. I am very excited. You are in the halls of Congress. 
It's all happening. How many people has Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to impeach this week? There's how many people she's actually tried to impeach and then how many people she said she's going to impeach. <laughs> so I, I started losing count at like three or four. She filed articles of impeachment today against Biden now. That's right. She did. And it was all centered on immigration and the border. So yes. maybe she's saving some more impeachment articles that have to do with Hunter Biden's laptop or things of that nature. But it was it was surprisingly it was surprisingly targeted when I was looking those over this morning. Yeah. Incredible stuff. You are in Congress. You are there in the halls of power. The venerable whatever. Just tell me what's going on there. <laughs> Well, there, there's a lot that's going on right now in Congress. It's a pretty busy time. You have like these big picture, extremely important, like macro level things that are happening, namely avoiding a catastrophic default on the U.S. federal debt. I've heard about that. You may, you may have seen this in the news. And then you have these just like insane little dramas playing out. And by that, uh, I'm talking about, you know, one particular freshman congressman from New York who your listeners may be familiar with. Oh, tell me more about <laughs> the congressman from Nassau County one. And we don't even really know that that's his real name, George Santos. We don't actually know. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't take anything for granted at this point. And these things intersect, too, because George Santos is is a key swing vote for for Speaker Kevin McCarthy, which continues to be um, which continues to be sort of hilarious. Right. So yesterday, Democrats tried something interesting, which was they put forward what's called a privileged resolution to expel George Santos from Congress. And a privileged resolution is a sort of rare tool in that it actually forces action. You, you can't just file it and people can ignore it and forget it. It has to be addressed in one way or the other. And so Democrats kind of up the ante with that, with obviously George Santos being indicted on, on criminal charges. And so what Republicans did was instead of kind of just taking it as an up or down vote, they reframed it as a as a motion to refer the matter of Santos's expulsion to the House Ethics Committee. So Republicans, like a lot of them, don't want Santos to be there, but they don't want to have to take this vote. And importantly, Kevin McCarthy kind of needs his vote for the time being. And so yesterday, all Republicans did vote to refer the matter to House Ethics, which is famous for taking an extremely <laughs> long time to literally do anything. And I want to point out the statistics on House ethics. Have they ever found anyone guilty ever? They actually have. They have put penalties on members in the past, but usually after very, very, very long investigations. <laughs> right. So the chances that Santos would be censured before his term was up seems unlikely. There's an existing precedent that that members have pointed to, which is that Congress has not expelled a member until their criminal proceedings were, were resolved, basically until they were convicted guilty. And so they, they're holding to that precedent, though I think there's plenty of people who'd argue that past examples, you know, they're bad, obviously, it's members who broke the law, but insider trading, okay, that's not good. Misuse <laughs> of campaign funds, that's not good. Right. George Santos, I mean, you don't even know where to begin. And there's people who make the point that it's, it's actively, actively bad and dangerous to have this guy in Congress, and so therefore past precedent should not apply Maybe maybe Republicans didn't find that persuasive, but there's a lot of interest in upholding the precedent and then also ensuring that they don't have to do anything about this right, right now. 
So, so DOJ is going to pursue its its thing. But interestingly, House Ethics has said that they're not going to pause their investigation on Santos while DOJ is acting, which is unusual. So, I don't know what that'll mean, but it, it, you know, there there could be more that House Ethics is looking into that maybe is outside the scope of DOJ. He could be facing some problems. I think I think we can definitively say that. That's a really sad story, and also whatever. I mean, he certainly has some kind of legal you know, exposure for all his criming. But the thing that makes me so bummed out is how a Democrat lost this seat. It's pretty baffling when you look at the the history of, of that seat and what the dynamics were. And it, it was the story really across sort of New York. Right. New York State. Yeah. That, that wasn't even the most Democratic leading seat that a Republican won in 2022. And you know, I, I think about it all the time. I mean, this guy was sort of hiding in plain sight and the kind of lies that he told were, were just not accustomed to that like level of insane fabrication. Usually, you know, obviously when somebody says, I worked here, here's where I went to school, you know, you, you want to, <laughs> it should be checked out, but it's just so rare to see the level of fabrication. And then by the time it was caught, it was, it was too late. You know, I think what's interesting is like what Santos's end game really is. You know, he's continuing to draw a salary. We know this is important to him, given that he filed for unemployment while actually having a job or that right. he's allegedly <laughs> broke the law by doing that. He had signed on to a bill to that was. Oh, yeah. 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 It, can you tell us, explain that? Because that's a fascinating wrinkle. It's one of the many just sort of like you can't make it up ironies to Santos's um, sort of brief life in Congress. But when Republicans were negotiating and passing this, um, you know, their version of the, the duck ceiling spending bill, George Santos was the loudest voice in that entire group pushing for work requirements for, you know, federal benefits to be stricter. He was like, no, we got to do, you know, you got to work at least 30 hours a week to get this. Like, um, this is my red line. And people are like, all right, George Santos, okay. And then he was the lead sponsor of um, legislation that would, you know, the, the goal of the legislation was to crack down on people who had abused pandemic unemployment benefits. So fast forward, George Santos is literally indicted fraudulently mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. pandemic unemployment benefits as right. he sponsored this legislation to crack down on on people like him. And then, you know, it puts his whole work requirements push in a totally different thing. It raises the question, like, what the hell is this guy doing? And what is his end game? And I, I've looked at, like, what he's done. He's he's tried to be kind of MAGA, but he's also tried to be like this kind of pro-labor union, New York sort of swing Republican he can't really decide like what his his tribe is. And so he's sort of just thrown spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks and to change the subject from this sort of endless, um, you know, this endless parade of, of scandals and now legal action that he faces. One of the things that somebody said about Santos, a, a journalist who's co who is covering the House, and I'm curious if this tracks with what you've seen, is um, <clears throat> that when he got to the House, he was very, and this is something I've seen in the reporting about him. He was quite quiet, a little bit nervous, uh, pretty uncomfortable. And then he sort of discovered that the MAGA caucus is, you know, cannot be shamed, is unshameable, has that same kind of Trumpy inability to be held responsible for things they do. And he just joined with those guys. 
Yeah, exactly. And and he quickly found that crew. I mean, the first few days he was sort of sitting by himself during the speaker vote. Um, and it was like on TV for everyone to see him sort of sitting alone at the right. lunch table. Um, but then, you know, he gravitated towards the people in the MAGA caucus, you know, many of whom have faced their own sort of accusations of legal travails. And he kind of settled into to these folks. And yeah, you know, it's been interesting to watch Santos even adopt, you know, the Trumpian language, you know, tweeting witch hunt in response is, you know, if he thinks perhaps on target, who knows that the Republican Party is is kind of so gullible to think that if you just say witch hunt whenever you're accused of doing anything bad, that, you know, you're you're going to be fine. But um, I'm willing to bet that George Santos is, is probably not held in the esteem in the Republican Party that Donald Trump is. And, and you know, it's been interesting to watch Santos's. I, I think you're starting to see Republicans like really, really lose their patience with him in the building. I think at first, he was sort of this like distracting amusement. And now he's being charged with serious crimes. Democrats are, are, are needling them over it. And like, I think this week there was a palpable sense of exasperation. Like this guy just needs to fucking resign. Like, right. what is he going to get by by being here? Because no matter which way you slice it, he he's not long for that for that building, whether he's, you know, convicted or whether he, he's going to be defeated in a primary election next year. I mean, there's just no good ending to this for him. And so maybe he's just trying to write it out and collect his paycheck, right. you know, until the end comes. The fundamental problem Republicans have, right, is that they're saying that Trump can do stuff like this because he's popular and Santos can't because he just doesn't come from a red enough district. I mean, that's the moral problem these Republicans have. Santos is famous because, like, literally because of all the crazy stuff that that he's done. You know, this is his entire reputation at this point. And I think when it when it gets there, the idea that this is like some sort of witch hunt is like, I don't know who sees that tweet and goes, yeah, they're they're really out to get this guy. I mean, like, you know, this is the same week that he pleaded uh, guilty in, I guess, a Brazilian court to stuff he'd been charged with there. So. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but it's not so different than Trump. I mean, like Eugene is the standout and he's got 26 allegations. I mean, the guy has, you know, he led an insurrection. I mean, the you know, where there's smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and it's burning, there's fire. Yeah. And, and I think there is a fundamental similarity in like, what did Trump sort of show other politicians that if you just deny, obstruct, deflect, change the subject, attack, when these things happen, you'll make it through. And, and I think that is a really important lesson. And you've seen politicians adapt to that and take that lesson. But people like George Santos have a much shorter runway to get right. away with that. Than a Donald Trump. Than a Donald Trump. And also just, I mean, the staggering, <laughs> the staggering array of stuff that, that George Santos is piled up that you just really, really can't make up. So talk to me about the discharge petition. Biden has to negotiate with probably the dumbest speaker the House has ever had. I'm just going to say that for me because I'm on the opinion side, so I can say <laughs> stuff like that. The Republicans have said, like, if you use the 14th Amendment, we'll, you know, do something horrible to you. But there is also this tool of the discharge petition. Tell us about the discharge petition. It's another one of those, like, congressional mechanisms that can force something to get to the floor, whether the majority leadership wants it to or not. And it, it's been used various times in the past, sometimes even by members of the majority party. Since really the, the beginning of, of the Republican majority in the House, people have been talking about 
using a discharge petition, it requires a certain number of signatures, and then it starts this process to force a bill to the floor. There was talk about using that to get a debt ceiling extension to the floor, thinking that, you know, Republicans were, were not going to be able to get their act together and that there would be this brinkmanship and that there would need to be some kind of offering to that. So Democrats this week started that process of the discharge petition thinking was you need majority in the House to do it. So if every Democrat joined with like six Republicans, right, five, five Republicans, Republicans right, right, that they could do it. Here's the problem is the way this thing works, like the actual like dotting the I's crossing the T's of this takes a very long time. And so if they had wanted to really have this as a live option, they would have had to do it months ago. Because like right now. Why does it take so long? Oh, gosh. It's like, I don't even really know. It's like, it just takes a long time. Yeah. It needs to go to different members or it needs. Well, they need to get the signatures a, and then like, uh, there's some like kind of parliamentary stuff that I don't even like quite fully understand. I just know that like, it just takes time. There's like no way you can fast track it. You know, as folks know, it's forecast that sometime in June, the treasury is going to hit the the actual hard borrowing limit at which point there would be there would be a default if um if it's not extended so they don't they don't have time to do this right now so could this become relevant if say the two sides agree to like a short term extension say give it another month right however like could it become relevant it's it's possible but i think the other really relevant thing is that i've been surprised by how unified republicans have been so far behind McCarthy from kind of both his like, you know, center right flank to like the far right flank, they are sort of giving him room to do this. And I don't think that any Republican would sign on to the discharge right now, because that would be really a shot across the bow to McCarthy, basically saying, we don't trust you to get this done. You're risking default. We're going to go with the Democrats and, and get this thing on the floor. I don't think any of them are inclined to do that right now. Do you think that McCarthy is going to allow a default? It's funny you asked this. I was I was asking Republican members yesterday. Uh, you might have caught Donald Trump's comment at the CNN town hall that oh, we could just do a little default, you know? Right. <laughs> yes, I did. You just do a little bit of that. Why should he run the country any different than he runs his business? Right. Right. Just have a little default. It's fine. And every Republican will tell you, like, no, like that's not how how this works. We don't want a default. Yet, as folks, you know, Democrats will point out, like, the only reason their negotiating stance is credible is because people have to believe that, like, they would default if they didn't get what they wanted. And so McCarthy is walking that line. The thing that's so important here is Democrats are playing ball in a way that I think, frankly, is surprising even to some of the party. Biden started by saying, we're not going to negotiate at all. Then he said, we're not going to negotiate on the debt limit, but we'll negotiate on the budget. Two different things, right? Now he's saying, oh, well, well, we're just talking about the budget while this default crisis is happening. You know, just just look past that. We're still just negotiating about the budget. You know, I think the 14th Amendment stuff is an expression really of frustration among Democrats that Biden has really kind of embraced the mantle of, of negotiating 
Right. Republicans would like to tank the economy so that they can get their guy in in 24. I mean, it's hard to imagine that these people are good faith negotiators. Again, look, the 14th Amendment, there could really be problems with that, right? I mean, if it ends up kicked up to the Supreme Court, I mean, it's hard to imagine a world where the Supreme Court does something that's not completely insane. I think that's, yeah, it's uncharted territory. I do think that McCarthy... And certainly like McConnell at the end of the day, I, I think in their heart of hearts were like, yeah, we, we shouldn't have a default. I do think unlike in past fights like this, I do think there is a segment of the Republican Party that it really doesn't care. And oh, I mean, yeah. forget about the, you know, the political aspect of this or whether this hurts Biden. I think Trump honestly complicated things for himself because if a default does happen, he'll have been seen as cheering on a default and helping make it happen. So right. like, let's set that aside there. I don't think he gets held responsible for the things he does by his base. I think that's right, too. But there are some Republicans who genuinely believe that a default would be better than not cutting spending dramatically. But they're morons. I mean, I think that's going to be the dynamic that defines this whole thing, because McCarthy will come back, say they strike some deal with with Biden, and he's going to come back to his members who are some of them under the illusion that they're just going to like vote basically on the bill that they passed on a party line. Right. And he's going to take a deal with them and they're going to hate it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I don't understand is even if you get McCarthy to agree, there's no evidence that McCarthy really has power over this caucus. I mean, remember how many votes he had to go through to be speaker. Yeah, that's right. And as part of that vote, they gained the power or the members gained the power to force him out. But <laughs> a few of them wanted to have the vote. Um, I have you saw that there are sort of blue dog Dems who've said that if he brings a vote, they will make sure to keep him as speaker. Yeah, that's right. They're trying to say, no, look, if you if you do the right thing here, we'll back you up. I still think it gets very tricky. And when push comes to shove, is that actually going to be what happens? I mean, the conventional wisdom has been, you know, whatever comes of this of this debt limit thing, it's probably going to end McCarthy's speakership. I don't know, but I'm certainly, I've, again, I, I'm more I'm more surprised at how much room his party has, has seemed to give him in this, just considering, you know, how bad the start of his speakership was. I think they're giving him some room. Now, what will that translate when they're actually talking about a specific deal? I'm not so sure. Yeah, I'm not either. It really has just continually been a shit show. It, it has been a shit show. And I think back a lot to that week in January where it took them so long to have McCarthy. And and you still hear people talk about how much that kind of set back the business of, of the Republican majority, which is something that at the time they strenuously denied that this was going to do anything. But I think any sensible person would say, you know, this probably will have some kind of back. Yeah. And that's what's happened. But look, I mean, he passed, you know, people might say, oh, well, he passed a bill. It's just like Republicans, like, you know, whatever. That's not that hard. It actually was incredibly hard. I don't think people expected him to do that. And so that really, I mean, he's he's not made it easy for Biden. I think maybe the White House might have thought that this this was going to be easier for them and they could have stuck to their guns of saying, look, you know, we're not going to go negotiate with you guys over this. We're not going to reward hostage taking. You're starting to see in the last week some discontent bubble from Democrats who feel that Biden is actually, in fact, rewarding hostage taking by by negotiating with McCarthy. Sam Brody, we've gone way over time, as always. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Always. Happy to do anytime. And now your moment of fuckery. 
Jesse Cannon. Molly Jong Fast, you know, most people don't know most amendments. And uh, the 14th one, you know, I feel like uh, we've only been recently hearing about this. What do you see in here? Look, the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution as part of the end of slavery and the end of the Civil War. But in it, there is a line that says that the United States honors its debts, which means that runs completely contrary to the idea of a debt ceiling limit where the United States decides it's not going to pay its debts because Republicans don't want to. So today we had Jeff Merkley, Bernie Sanders, Peter Welsh, John Fetterman, and a couple of others, and they have put together a sort of suggestion that the Biden administration should go along with the 14th Amendment. Now, It would be really complicated for them to do the 14th Amendment, and ultimately it would probably get kicked up to the Supreme Court. This Supreme Court, as we know, tends to run very, very, very Trumpy. I don't love the idea of being dependent on this Supreme Court to keep us out of default. That said, I think that the 14th Amendment is a good way to try to force Kevin McCarthy's hand. And so I think it's smart that these Democrats are doing it. And so they are not our moment of fuckery, but Kevin McCarthy, one of the stupidest speakers of the house ever, does get our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.